No comment yet from the Justice Department after the House January 6th committee recommends insurrection charges against former President Trump. It's Tuesday, December 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... An insurrection is a rebellion against the authority of the United States. It is a grave federal offense. What's next after House lawmakers asked federal prosecutors to charge Trump for his role in the deadly 2021 riot? Also, a jury convicts former Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein of rape and sexual assault. And this hour, education advocates applaud a new move in Massachusetts schools to conduct literacy screenings for kids as young as kindergarten. We can predict who's going to have this trouble by age five. So if we can do that, why would we wait for them to fail? In sports, Bruins win sunny in the upper 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is referring former President Donald Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports the panel is recommending Trump and his lawyer be prosecuted on four criminal charges. The January 6th committee voted 9-0 to zero to refer both President Trump and his outside lawyer John Eastman for four separate charges, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, and inciting an insurrection. Trump is running for president again in 2024, but committee vice chair Liz Cheney said the evidence shows Trump should be disqualified from returning to public office. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. The Justice Department already has a broad investigation underway related to January 6th and other issues concerning Trump. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Vice President Kamala Harris says Congress needs to act on broader immigration reforms. Her comments came in an interview with NPR's Asma Khalid. Hours later, the Supreme Court temporarily halted the expiration of a public health order that limits migrants from entering the United States. The vice president acknowledges that ending Title 42 could pose some challenges, but she insists that Congress needs to take the lead on immigration reform. We need leadership on this issue, in in particular from Congress. Now, the president and I and our administration, we are going to do everything that's within our ability as the executive branch. And that means, again, putting more agents um, on the border as appropriate so that we can manage Um, what might be an influx. But ultimately, Harris says immigration needs legislative solutions, and she says Republicans in Congress have been unwilling to engage. The Biden administration has been asking Congress for additional funding for border security. Asma Khalid, NPR News. North Korea is condemning Japan's biggest military buildup since World War II. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports that Japan decided on Friday to increase defense spending and acquire long-range missiles. The North's foreign ministry says in a statement that Japan's new policy of aggression will fundamentally alter East Asia's security situation. It blames the U.S. for instigating Japan's move and says Pyongyang will show its displeasure through unspecified actions. Japan says it plans to acquire U.S. cruise missiles capable of hitting North Korea and parts of China. That's NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting. This is NPR News. 
in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Cape Cod doctor says he will continue to fight to allow doctors to help terminally ill patients end their lives. The state Supreme Judicial Court has ruled that doctors can be criminally prosecuted if they do so. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Dr. Roger Kliegler says he's disappointed by yesterday's ruling, but he will work with state lawmakers on a bill that would allow doctors to help terminally ill patients die. Kliegler, who's getting treatment for cancer, said legislation would help all dying patients. So this is personal for me uh, with my cancer, and it's personal for friends of mine who have died with too much suffering. Opponents of physician-assisted suicide say doctors should not be allowed to help patients die, and they'll continue to fight against measures that would permit that. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A group of local doctors is urging people to wear masks and get vaccinated ahead of the holidays. The Massachusetts Medical Society says COVID, the flu, and other respiratory diseases are causing a strain on the local health care system. It recommends getting this year's flu shot as well as a COVID vaccine if you haven't received one in the last six months. If you are not feeling well, the group says it is best to stay home. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu plans to give her State of the City address on January 25th. She told WBUR's Radio Boston yesterday she'll deliver the speech at the MGM Music Hall at Fenway. The mayor says a lot of thought went into choosing a location for the speech. We chose a venue that is newer and, you know, new energy in the city, love the flexibility, and and now this great asset for the arts community as well. Um, It's slightly larger. The mayor also said she wants to make the address more interactive than usual. The state fire marshal is investigating a gas leak in Norwood that killed a man. It happened yesterday at a processing plant run by Home Market Foods. The company says two HVAC workers accidentally severed an ammonia pipe. A 68-year-old man from Dighton died. The other worker was hurt. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the trustees. With exciting properties across Massachusetts, adventure is in their nature. You can begin your quest at thetrustees.org slash explore. The Bruins topped the Florida Panthers 7-3 last night at the Garden. The Bees' next game is Thursday at home against the Winnipeg Jets. Former Patriots star Willie McGinnis is facing felony charges for his alleged involvement in a brawl in Los Angeles. Police tell Sports Illustrated the fight happened at a nightclub earlier this month. McGinnis was arrested yesterday and released on bail. He's due in court tomorrow. McGinnis spent 12 seasons with the Patriots and won three Super Bowls with the team. In your forecast, sunny today with a high in the upper 30s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s, mostly sunny tomorrow and near 40. Rain moves in Thursday night. It's 30 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. 
The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol held its last hearing Monday afternoon, outlining what the public can expect from its final report. The hearing fell on the second anniversary of then-President Trump's tweet calling for supporters to come to Washington to protest his election defeat. He wrote that the protest, quote, will be wild. That call to action was the heart of the committee's case against Trump for inciting an insurrection. We're going to hear from NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Uh, Domenico, the major headline from the hearing is the committee's uh, unanimous referral for criminal charges against Donald Trump. So outline those for us, please. Well, the committee is alleging that Trump obstructed an official proceeding, conspired to defraud the United States, conspired to make a false statement, and assisted, aided, and comforted those involved in an insurrection. More than 900 people have already been charged with crimes stemming from January 6th, and the FBI says some 2,000 may have been involved. But Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, one of the members of the committee, said Trump is the one who inspired the riot and should also face charges. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. Remember, we're talking about inspiring a mob to storm the Capitol, pressuring elections officials around the country, participating in a scheme to submit fake electors, and all of this was to overturn the election results of an election that Trump lost fair and square. It's a remarkable thing. It's never happened before. A former U.S. president being referred for crimes to defraud the United States, and he's running again for the job. Now, much of the work of the committee is uh, already public, but did it reveal anything new? Well, there's certainly a lot of recap, and part of that is because the committee acknowledged there just are millions of people, especially Republicans, not tuning in. But yesterday, we did hear from Hope Hicks, Trump's former White House communications advisor. We hadn't heard from her before in these hearings, and Hicks pointed out in taped testimony that she told Trump that by continuing to make these false allegations of fraud, he was potentially damaging his legacy. He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is, is winning. And the bottom line is that Trump had no exit ramp from losing the election. And here's someone in his inner circle, formerly inner circle, confirming that was his mindset in those days after the 2020 election. Okay, the committee also referred four Republican congressmen to the House Ethics Committee. Um, Domenico, so I mean, what now? What impact might all of this have? Well, we'll see if the Ethics Committee, which is evenly split between the parties, actually pursues this. Uh, of course, Republicans are going to be in charge of Congress uh, next term in just a couple weeks. You know, the four members of Congress were referred, ironically, for not complying with a congressional subpoena. Uh, they're Kevin McCarthy, the man who will be in line to be uh, next House Speaker or wants to be, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, and Jim Jordan of Ohio. You know, for their part, they're dismissing the referrals as partisan, but, you know, the committee wanted to talk to them because they're close to Trump. They talked to him on or before January 6th. Uh, but now any consequences for them or others involved really is in the hands of the Justice Department because at this point, the January 6th committee really is out of time. And when it comes to whether or not Trump winds up being the, the standard bearer once again for the Republican Party, it's really going to come down to those Republican primary voters. And like we said, many of them just haven't been tuning in. NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Representative Jamie Raskin is with us next. He was the lead manager in former President Trump's second impeachment trial and went on to serve on the January 6th committee. Representative Raskin, welcome back. 
Hey, thanks so much for having me. Your colleague Adam Schiff was on the program a few weeks ago and acknowledged that a criminal referral of conduct by the president, the former president, is both a legal question and a political one. Of course, you want to do what's right for the country. You might hold back if you thought it was not right for the country. So what makes potentially prosecuting a former president the right thing for the country? Well, the only question that should matter is whether or not he engaged in criminal conduct. And so it's the facts of the matter and what the law says. And that's what our focus was yesterday. Um, he clearly satisfies all the elements for uh, obstructing an official proceeding. That was the whole purpose of his scheme. And he succeeded in interrupting it for four hours. Um, the only time that's ever happened in American history. Um, he, he was engaged in a conspiracy to defraud the United States um, and uh, very nearly succeeded in doing it, but he clearly was attempting to overthrow our democratic election and substitute his counterfeit electors, his whole fake scheme. Uh, there was a conspiracy to make false statements and he acted to incite, assist, and give aid and comfort to an insurrection. So in a society where all of us are treated equally under the law, the fact that he's a former president would make no more difference than the fact that he is a former businessman or TV star. But you understand, of course, the, I guess you could call it the Gerald Ford with Richard Nixon argument, the argument that it would be bad for the country to have a former president literally at the defendant's table in a public courtroom on trial. Is it wise, do you think, that it would be wise ultimately for the former president to be at the defendant's table in a courtroom on trial? Well, you know, there are some countries that adopt provisions and constitutions saying that former presidents cannot be charged with crimes. I think Chile had that uh, it was something that Pinochet insisted upon. But that's not the way our democracy operates. All of us have to be equal under the law, and the Department of Justice uh, has to regard it uh, in that way. I mean, either that's a real proposition or that's a fake one, and there's enough fake stuff going on in the country. I mean, more than 900 people have been prosecuted for crimes like assaulting federal officers, destroying federal property, seditious conspiracy attempted overthrow or put down the government why should the foot soldiers be going to jail and not the ringleaders and the masterminds of this scheme to defeat american democracy look if he if he, donald trump had succeeded he'd be bragging about it how he was the one who came up with the whole plan it's very clear to those of us who've given two years of our lives uh, to studying this that none of it would have happened without the will of Donald Trump. Let me ask about something else that you did yesterday. You referred four of your fellow lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, to the Ethics Committee for failing to honor subpoenas. One of them is Kevin McCarthy, the presumptive House Speaker. Another is Andy Biggs, who has been challenging him as House Speaker. And in any case, it would seem, unless they truly screw it up, that Republicans are about to take over the House narrowly. Can't they just make your report go away in the Ethics Committee? Well, um, as a terrible precedent for the future, they could make it go away. They could just sit on it. Remember, the Ethics Committee is split between Democrats and Republicans, and right. they're facing a pretty profound question, which is, if members of Congress get subpoenaed to testify about their knowledge of a criminal offense, and this one, an attack on the Constitution itself, uh, can they just blow off the subpoena? Uh, you know, we're not able to take them to court, likely, because of the speech or debate clause, which says that we can't hold people to account who are members of Congress 
outside of Congress. We have to hold them to account within the channels of uh, Congress. And so all we really could do is refer them to the Ethics Committee. And I, you know, I trust and hope that the members of the Ethics Committee on a bipartisan basis will consider this very serious problem. And is part of the purpose here, you, you want them to consider this problem. You want to challenge them to come over to your side and acknowledge that something needs to be done. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a special concern when, uh, you know, there's an attempt to overthrow our election and essentially uh, subdue our constitutional order and have uh, someone seize the presidency who didn't win it. And if members of Congress have knowledge of that and may have been involved in it, but refuse to say anything about it, we're setting a precedent for future attacks on democracy itself. And that's really the burden of our committee to make sure that we prevent coups, insurrections, electoral sabotage and political violence in the future. House Republicans, as you probably know, have spoken of somehow investigating the investigators once they take charge in January. Are you generally and you personally prepared for whatever comes next? Well, you know, our, the work of our committee is an open book where we want the whole country to see uh, all of the transcripts, all of the interviews, um, everything that took place. So we're going to try to make it public as quickly as possible. Uh, obviously, someone with a jaundiced eye could go in and try to look for something else. But we're used to that uh, at this point. And we really do feel like we're standing up for democracy for future generations. Do you think your report has altered public understanding of what has happened? Well, I hope so. Um, I think the, most of the public understands that Donald Trump's own attorney general said that his claims uh, in the big lie are, quote, BS. I won't spell it out any further. Most Thank you. Understand. The FCC thanks you as well. Please proceed. <laughs> they, they understand that Donald Trump wanted to wave in all of the armed people that he was perfectly aware uh, were in the crowd. They understand that he said, you go and fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Um, they understand that he took no concern to try to protect us against the mob that he unleashed against us. So he didn't call the army. He didn't call the National Guard. He sat there uh, in his little dining room watching this unfold like a, a perfect uh, bystander or someone from another country or another planet. He showed no interest in trying to defend us. I think that story is indelibly imprinted in the public imagination. Representative Raskin, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. He was a member of the House January 6th Committee, which is wrapping up its business before the end of this Congress at the end of this year. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, South Korea has announced an investigation into hundreds of international adoptions out of the country, saying they may have involved fake records. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. 
committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Americans are spending more time alone and less time with friends. We are social creatures, which means that just like we need water, we need oxygen, we need food to function, we need social interaction. The dramatic drop in how much time you spend with your friends and why it's so important to reverse the trend. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clear skies today with a high near 40 and some strong winds. It stays mostly clear tonight and falls to a low of 22. Tomorrow, sunny with a high again near 40. Mostly cloudy and near 50 on Thursday. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Tonight's the night for WBUR's holiday tradition, a reading of A Christmas Carol. Tiziana Deering, Robin Young, Jack Lepiars, and others are taking part in this year's reading of the Dickens classic. And take it from me, they're very entertaining. The event raises money for Rosie's play. Join us tonight at 7, either in person or virtually. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. It's 720. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Searchlight Pictures with Empire of Light, a new film by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth about the power of human connection during a time of great change, now playing in select theaters. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with storage products too, featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and UGG. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. South Korea has set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. One of its goals is to investigate adoptions that took place while the country was under authoritarian rule. Adoptees around the world say private adoption agencies in South Korea faked documents to make children look like orphans when they actually had living parents. Korean-American journalist Kaomi Lee is one adoptee whose case is under review. She was adopted by a white American family more than 50 years ago. She has since discovered that her adoption story is not what she was led to believe. And she spent the last several years looking for answers. There is this common adoption narrative that our parents tell and tell us and our community tells us that you were lucky to be here and you should be grateful. And also that you previously had a bad life and you came to a good life. I think we find that these stories about us being orphans, about um, not having parents and needing, you know, someone to care for us in a family, we actually find through researching our own stories, talking to others, and now with this kind of formal um, examination of cases, that these stories were not always true. And now there is uh, implications that adoption agencies falsified records and manufactured identities. Do you know anything about your birth parents at this point? (laughs) 
50 years of my life, uh, nothing. Of course, my paperwork that it came with me has um, an orphan registry that was created by the adoption agency. There's no parents listed. They were like ghosts growing up. And if you think about your story and the first 10 pages or the first 100 pages are missing and it's something you don't get to know, it's something you accept growing up. But I, I was disturbed that through DNA, I discovered a half-sister who was also adopted. Uh, in her case, she was adopted to Denmark. We met last year. She's about 10 years younger than I am. Mm -hmm. And in her father was some information about her parents, and we have a shared father. And that's mm -hmm. when I discovered that he had been alive until about 10 years ago. Wow. And so that's kind of devastating as you know, someone who's, you know, around 50 years old to realize that the story that they had been told had been a fabrication and that there had been a living parent at the time of my adoption, at least one. It, it begs the question, did that parent even consent to having me be sent overseas and, you know, basically vanished from Korea? I don't know. And that question will never be answered because he's now deceased. There are allegations of, you know, switching babies' identities to make it look like they didn't have parents. Can you expand on that? What lengths were taken to ship these children out of South Korea? Koreans all uh, get a family registry. It's called a hojek, and it's essentially your family tree. And it puts you in Korean society officially, on paper, on the record. What's happened with Korean adoptees is the Korean private agencies created fake hojaks. It's like a manufactured identity where they'll put a name, a birth date. It might not even be our true uh, details, um, but under parents, it's blank. It's a way to isolate us out of Korean society as if we'd never existed. And I think this is very damning because under further examination, I hope that the body will actually conclude that this was a systematic program to make 200,000 children disappear from society. We have been created Why? new... Why did they want children to disappear? Um, I think part of it is perhaps you're talking about authoritarian regimes who had this kind of mandate that they wanted to uh, purify the race and make sure that there were not unwanted children of mixed race, you know, American GIs and Korean women, uh, one category. Children of single mothers, that's another category of not respectable or um, children that they wanted to keep around. And so it was a system of erasing people. And I think it's a social engineering where it's dictating what kinds of people can be Korean and shipping out or removing people who didn't fit the profile that they wanted for Koreans. There's another reason for it, though, which is U.S. immigration policy requires for Americans to adopt orphans. If they're going to adopt a foreign child from South Korea, that child has to be an orphan. It's almost like supply and demand, and so the Korean private agencies under very little or no regulation themselves sprang into action and created what the West demanded, and that was an orphan. You have talked to all these other people who share at least this part of your experience 
of being adopted from South Korea and having this, these holes in their knowledge. What kind of guidance do you give others about how to live with not knowing the full truth of who you are and how you came to be? If nothing else, adoptees are resilient. We have learned to go forward in life. And even though perhaps we are missing the beginning pages of our story, to go out and try to live full lives. But it's something that you know has always been missing from yourself. And you have been able to go out and live without this very you know, primal part of yourself. But I think it's something that is an ache that like you never really feel whole. But I do think that this is something that Korean adoptees should have the right to know who our natural identities are and the people we came from. And until that right is restored to us, I think we'll always be living with this part of ourselves that can be a source of pain. Korean-American journalist Kaomi Lee. Her adoption is one of hundreds that will be investigated by South Korea's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we talk to the director of a shelter for migrants in El Paso, Texas, who says the city won't have the resources to help if the number of people arriving rises once the pandemic migration restrictions known as Title 42 end. It's 729. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump is being referred to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution for his role in the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. The House Select Committee investigating last year's assault by Trump supporters is recommending the DOJ charge the former president with four counts, including insurrection. NPR's Kerry Johnson has more. Mostly what these uh, Justice Department lawyers want to see is the evidence, the transcripts of the interviews with a thousand or so witnesses, any additional documents the committee has got its hands on, uh, videos and, and audio, other evidence of that sort to help prosecutors build cases. The U.S. Supreme Court is ordering pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42 to remain in place temporarily. They were set to expire tomorrow. NPR's Joel Rose says 19 Republican state attorneys general argued that to lift them would trigger a surge at the border. An order from Chief Justice John Roberts didn't say much. It only says that the lower court ruling is stayed for the moment. It doesn't lay out any kind of timetable for how long the stay will continue. However, it does ask the Justice Department for a response today. 
which suggests that you know we could get a relatively quick decision on whether these Title 42 restrictions are extended or whether they're allowed to end soon, maybe even in the next few days. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts will soon have the first cabinet-level climate chief in the country. Governor-elect Maura Healey plans to install Melissa Hoffer in that role. Hoffer currently works for the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. Environmental groups are applauding the move. Brad Campbell is president of the Conservation Law Foundation. She's a terrific person, varied in her talents, wide experience, and someone who I think will be extremely effective, formidable, really, in terms of getting good policy done. Hoffer also worked under Healy in the state attorney general's office. Rhode Island-based CVS is limiting how much children's pain medication can be bought at once. The move comes amid supply shortages and a bad cold and flu season that's hitting kids especially hard. CVS is limiting each customer to no more than two kids' pain products at a time. That policy is in effect both online and in stores. Walgreens has a similar limit in place. The Roslindale community is rallying around a number of small businesses. They had to temporarily close Sunday after a car slammed into a building on Corinth Street. It destroyed a barber shop and a beauty salon and brought down the second-story facade of the building. Anna Van Ray Mortel is executive director of Roslindale Village Main Street. She says she's working to find temporary homes for the businesses. Over a dozen businesses have reached out to me saying they have either storage space or like an open office space. One of our realtor offices moved their employees and they're going to work from home and they're housing three of our businesses there. I've just been working on connecting the people in need with people with spaces. A GoFundMe page set up to help business owners has raised more than $52,000. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Patrice Bergeron scored twice and had two assists for the Bruins last night. They beat the Florida Panthers 7-3 at the Garden. The Bees are off until Thursday when they'll host the Winnipeg Jets. In your forecast, sunny and windy with temperatures rising to near 40 today. Tonight, mostly clear and low 20s. Tomorrow, a repeat of today, sunny and near 40. We'll get a slight warm-up to near 50 on Wednesday, but it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 30 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab with a variety of financial planning options from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant. Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow today. More at schwab.com plan. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of three of seven charges in his sex crimes trial in Los Angeles. And as for the others, the jury could not reach an agreement on three charges and acquitted Weinstein on another. NPR's Manalita El Barco reports this was his second rape conviction. She joins us now. In one note, this conversation will discuss rape and assault. Uh, Manalita, it's a split verdict. Why wasn't it a slam dunk? 
Well, you know, A, the jury of eight men and four women found Harvey Weinstein guilty of raping and sexually assaulting one woman, but they acquitted him on another woman completely. And after deliberating for 10 days, they couldn't come to a decision on charges related to two other women at all. And the judge declared a mistrial on those counts. You know, a, a case like this is very hard to win. And even though we've read so much about Harvey Weinstein in the news, despite the Pulitzer Prize winning investigations and documentaries and feature films about him, and despite the fact that he was the original villain of and kicked off the entire Me Too movement, well, that's not what was tried in court. More than 100 women have accused Weinstein of sexual misconduct. In court, he was called a predator and a monster who lured women to hotel rooms for his attacks. Harvey Weinstein did not take the stand, but his lawyers worked very hard to convince the jury that these were all consensual affairs, that the women had engaged in so-called transactional sex to get ahead in Hollywood. And they said that Harvey Weinstein was simply part of the casting couch culture. Okay, now what are the victims and their lawyers saying? Well, the jury found Weinstein guilty of all three charges related to a model and actress identified only as Jane Doe. And after the verdict, she told news outlets that Weinstein forever destroyed her the night he raped her after a film festival in 2013. In a statement, she said, quote, I hope Weinstein never sees the outside of a prison cell during his lifetime. Now, another of his accusers was Jennifer Siebel Newsom, the wife of California's governor. She said in a statement that, quote, throughout the trial, Weinstein's lawyers used sexism, misogyny, and bullying tactics to intimidate, demean, and ridicule us survivors. Her attorney, Beth Fagan, told NPR that Newsom and another accuser she represented were disappointed that Weinstein wasn't found guilty on all counts. Harvey Weinstein's defense team really took the approach of not defending his actions or explaining why he did what he did, but instead in attacking the women and calling them bimbos. I mean, their testimony was courageous, it was powerful, it was incredibly emotional. And the defense team's attack on them, attack on their character, really exacerbated their trauma. You know, Fagan and Newsom both said the results of this trial is a reminder that society has a lot more work to do to support survivors. What happens to Harvey Weinstein now? He faces a possible sentence of 24 years in prison on top of the 23-year sentence he's already serving for his rape conviction in New York. That's something he's now appealing. On the other hand, Harvey Weinstein is 70 years old. He's not doing well physically, and he could spend the rest of his life behind bars. That's NPR's Manalit del Barco in Los Angeles. Uh, Manalit, thanks. Thank you. The uncertainty over Title 42 is being seen and felt along the U.S.-Mexico border. The Trump-era policy used to quickly expel migrants during the pandemic was due to end tomorrow, but the Supreme Court has put that on hold while it considers a request from a group of Republican state attorneys general to keep the policy in place. I spoke with Ruben Garcia about this. He's the director of Annunciation House, which runs five shelters for migrants in the El Paso area. Right now, from the statistics that we're seeing, Border Patrol is processing in the neighborhood of about 2,000, 2,100 individuals, refugees per day. If Title 42 is lifted from one day to the other, just like that, I would imagine that those numbers could jump up to four or 5,000 refugees per day. When it comes to the migrants that you are working with right now, where are they coming from? 
Are you noticing any changes in why they're showing up and what do they need? I've been doing this for almost 45 years. The reasons people flee their country has remained consistent for 45 years. They flee their country because they are afraid. They flee their country because their country is not able to allow them to feed their family. You know, I was speaking to an 18-year-old who came up with his mom and his four younger siblings, and they're from Ecuador, and they crossed through the Darien Gap. And, and really quick, uh, for those who don't know, the Darien Gap is the area that divides North America and South America in Panama. Yeah, Colombia and Panama, correct. Here I have a kid, and he looks every bit the part of a kid, and he's telling me about the dead bodies as they cross the Darien Gap. He tells me about the gangs taking people from the group they were taking, women being raped. You listen to people articulate the kinds of risks with their lives that they're taking in fleeing their country. And they have heard about this from others who have crossed and they see no other alternative. And yet that is a better option than to remain in Ecuador. The migrants that are in El Paso now, where are they staying? How many are out there right now? How many would you estimate? If Border Patrol is processing 2,000, 2,200 individuals per day, you have to then look at what is the capacity. The county can receive 600 of those. Your NGO network is going to receive in excess of 700 individuals today. Some will be placed on planes and there will be lateral flights to other border cities where they will be released. And then any individuals beyond those possibilities, they're going to get released to the street of El Paso. And this has been very, very challenging. The city has begun to offer some hotel accommodations, uh, places for people to, to spend the night while they make arrangements to move on. But even that is not sufficient. Outside of El Paso getting help from the federal government, who else can help? We're asking faith communities to consider the possibility of receiving refugees. My hope is that the number of faith communities across the country will increase dramatically, where it's possible to send buses to cities all across the country who are willing to step forward and to say, yes, this is something that belongs to us as a country. Ruben Garcia, Executive Director of Annunciation House Shelters in El Paso. Ruben, thank you very much. You're very welcome. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, advocates are applauding as new state rules take effect, mandating literacy screenings for kindergartners and up in Massachusetts school districts. And in our next hour, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has issued an order that temporarily maintains Title 42, a measure put in place during the pandemic that allows the U.S. to expel migrants seeking asylum. In your forecast, temperatures will rise to near 40 today, and it'll still be windy under sunny skies. Tonight falls to the low 20s. Tomorrow, about the same, clear skies and near 40. 
cloudy and near 50 on Thursday. It's 30 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Now, in business news, shoppers at Massachusetts grocery stores have seen egg prices jump this year. Alden Bourne reports that a key reason for the increase is the deadliest outbreak of bird flu in U.S. history. Steve Vendemia is the president of Hillendale Farms in Connecticut, which has three egg-laying facilities in the state and produces eggs for the Massachusetts market. He says a state law that took effect at the start of this year requiring only cage-free eggs be sold could have raised the price about 25 cents for a dozen eggs. But the majority of the jump consumers are seeing is caused by fewer birds available nationwide to lay eggs. He says Hillendale's farms don't produce as many as customers want. I have to go out on the open markets and buy those excess needs because this time of the year, the demand is so great. Vendemia says he expects egg prices could drop a bit after the holidays when demand is lower. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. A New Hampshire car dealership will pay more than $1 million to settle claims it tricked people into buying cars they could not afford. The state attorney general's office says Dan O'Brien Kia in Concord, New Hampshire, inflated customers' income and forged their signatures on loan applications to make the sales. It's 744. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Starting next summer, all Massachusetts school districts must screen kids' literacy skills twice a year. It's a requirement under a new state regulation. The goal is to find out which students struggle to read earlier on so schools can provide the needed support. WBOR's Vanessa Ochovillo takes a closer look at one school district's approach to the issue. At the Sumner G. Whittier School in Everett on a recent Friday, third grade teacher Audra Lassard is helping a small group of students sound out letters. She asks a boy named Matthew to carefully read aloud the word brim. Matthew, you ready? What do you notice about number three? It has BR. It has BR. And what's our vowel? I. And is I going to say I or I? I. All right, show us how you would sound that out. Brr. I. Brim. Yeah, do you know what a brim is? It's a simple lesson, but one that Lassard says is essential, especially in the early grades. In order for the students to be able to orally read, they have to be able to like decode the words. They have to be able to break down the words and understand like why that word says cat. Oh, it's a closed syllable. Why is there a magic E? What makes the vowel long? Some students already have these basic reading skills, but others need extra help. Schools can help identify who these students are using what's called an early literacy screener. A screener is a type of assessment that measures kids' reading ability and helps identify any risks of learning disabilities such as dyslexia. But the use of screeners across Massachusetts school districts has been uneven and inconsistent, putting many kids at risk of not receiving extra support in a timely way. In September, the Massachusetts Board of Elementary and Secondary Education approved a new rule requiring all school districts to evaluate kindergartners through third graders twice a year from a pre-approved list of tools. 
Board member Michael Moriarty says this is important to ensure consistent data. There are many, many vendors who want to sell you screeners, and they're of widely different quality, and sometimes they aren't all designed for exactly the same purpose. In the school year ending in 2021, the number of students identified as having a learning disability, such as dyslexia, nearly tripled between second and third grade. That's why some advocates like Nancy Duggan, executive director of the advocacy group Decoding Dyslexia Massachusetts, says screening kids as early as kindergarten helps certain students get more intensive support earlier on. With about 80 to 90 percent accuracy, we can predict who's going to have this trouble by age five. So if we can do that and we know kids are going to struggle, why would we wait for them to fail? These screeners return immediate results, and they tell with precision in what area a student is struggling, whether that's matching letters and sounds or correctly breaking up a word into separate syllables. Under the new regulation, schools must inform parents if a student is reading significantly below grade level. But it remains up to each school district to determine next steps for reading support. In Everett, the district is focused on grouping students into small pods and providing extra daily reading instruction. Genevieve McDonough, Director of English Language Arts and Literacy, says this tailored support is effective. For our students who are below grade level in certain areas, they are getting that intense intervention on certain skills across an eight or 12 week cycle. For us, it goes beyond just a screening. Back in Lassard's classroom, the teacher works with her small group of third graders on blending certain sounds. Thank you for raising your hand. Go ahead, Arthur. Branch. Yep, I see bur, ant, branch. And what's Miss Lassard hanging on with that sloth? A branch. A branch, good. Lassard says she's seeing signs of progress, including kids reading words per minute at a faster pace in just seven weeks. And the teacher is confident they'll continue to make gains throughout the rest of the school year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochavillo. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? The holiday spirit is getting there for me, Rupa. I'm increasingly sort of happy and excited and mellow, so... That makes me happy. Thank you. I'm glad. So listen, interestingly, we are in the 80th anniversary year of a tragedy, actually, mm. which is the Coconut Grove nightclub fire back in 1942. Um, new book out by Stephanie Shoro that looks at the at the tragedy. What I learned most from it are all the ways that this fire that killed nearly 500 people changed things we take for granted now. So burn care across the U.S. and hospitals wow. changed as a result of it. Mental health care for treaters who have been faced with trauma changed, mm. as well as all kinds of safety regulations and egress, and et cetera. So we'll learn the story and its impact. I've always wanted to know more about that, so thank you for it doing that. It is fascinating. I'll be listening. That's Great. Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. It's 7.50. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks, Dayquil Severe, 
a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at VIX.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm Scott Tong. Actor and director Sarah Polly read the acclaimed novel Women Talking and knew she had to make it into a film. It went through me like a bullet. It was so raw and powerful. That story and the latest on the January 6th report, next time in Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. For 75 years, the book Goodnight Moon has helped children around the world fall asleep. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon. It's been translated into more than two dozen languages. De una vaquita que salta sobre la luna, amsuka tarer tianomko, uye anjainen kumsemari. Da hinen auch zwei handschub. Goodnight Moon was written by Margaret Wise Brown with illustrations by Clement Hurd. Brown didn't live long enough to see her story's international success, as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports. Naming what's in the room and wishing each thing goodnight. That's all it is, and kids love it. And a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. Margaret Wise Brown was an unlikely children's book author. She was glamorous and cosmopolitan and didn't even really like children. She once said, I don't particularly care for children as a group. (laughs) But, says Leonard Marcus, one-on-one was okay. Marcus is the author of Margaret Wise Brown, Awakened by the Moon. She was kind of a daydreamer. She loved to tell stories and make mischief. Brown also wrote The Runaway Bunny and The Big Red Barn. And even though bunnies were characters in her stories, she liked to hunt them in real life. She was not like a sweet, cute children's book writer. Thatcher Hurd is himself a children's book author and the son of Clement Hurd, who illustrated Goodnight Moon. Margaret Wise Brown died when Thatcher was three, but he heard stories. When he was a toddler, he went with his parents to visit Brown at her home in Maine. She had made a little room for me. I mean, she she decorated a room in her house, this tiny little house on an island in Maine. And she covered everything with fur. So there was like a fur rug and a fur bedspread and... I was two, and I looked at it, and I burst into tears. But at the same time, Hurd says, Brown understood two-year-olds better than anybody. In the mid-1930s, she studied child development with a progressive group of educators and psychologists. As a writer, she wanted to try something that was less make-believe and more in the here and now. Leonard Marcus. The idea was that No, children aren't so much uh, interested in what's upon a time, castles and kings. They want to know about the world they're in uh, at the moment, starting with their own room. And a comb and a brush, and a bowl full of mush, and a quiet old lady who is whispering, hush. When children are new to the world, one of the first things they have to do is to find a way to feel at home there. And Goodnight Moon tells them that the world they find themselves in belongs to them, that they have a place in it. Good night, room. Good night, moon. Good night, cow jumping over the moon. Hard to believe now, but in the 1940s, Goodnight Moon was considered revolutionary. Too much so for the gatekeepers. For a children's book to succeed, it needed the approval of the New York Public Library. The head of its children's division was set in her ways. She famously tried to block E.B. White's Stuart Little, you know, the mouse born to a human family. 
the head librarian at New York Public had found that very disturbing. The same editor who worked on Stuart Little also worked on Goodnight Moon, Ursula Nordstrom of HarperCollins. When she saw Hurd's first illustrations, she asked him to change the picture of the cow jumping over the moon. He drew a cow the way you would draw a cow with an udder. But Ursula Nordstrom was very aware of how the librarians would react. And she knew they were very squeamish about bodily parts and physicality in general. So Clement Hurd removed the udder. Another example of that is the mouse that wanders through the room. In one of the early studies for the art, Clement Hurd put the mouse on the bed, very close to where the bunny was lying in bed. And she said, take the mouse off the bed. Hurd obliged. And good night, mouse. Nordstrom's efforts didn't make a difference. The New York Public Library not only excluded Goodnight Moon from its recommended children's book list, it didn't even acquire the story when it was published in 1947. And now it's one of the most checked out books of the New York Public Library. Jean McGinley is vice president of HarperCollins Children's Book Division. What they didn't understand was she went straight to the child and trailblaze, I guess, because now obviously we have a lot, you know, a lot of our bedtime stories are more soothing and have great social emotional learning hits and, and hooks. And, and she was doing it all before anybody else. Good night, Cole. And good night, brush. Good night, nobody. Good night, mush. In 1952, on a trip to Paris, Margaret Wise Brown died suddenly from an embolism following an operation. She was 42 years old. Twenty years later, the New York Public Library acquired Goodnight Moon and eventually named it one of the books of the century. Goodnight stars, goodnight air, goodnight noises everywhere. To be a children's writer, Brown once said, one has to love not children, but what children love. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This next story takes us to Maine, where a very old building material is getting a new application. The old material is wood. The new application is 3D printing. Researchers say they learned how to make a 3D printed house out of bits of wood. 3D printed homes are seen as a source of cheap housing. A single giant machine assembles a house layer by layer, normally out of concrete. Habib Dagger of the university's Advanced Structures and Composite Center says Maine's forest products industry can provide a different material. There is roughly 1 million tons per year of material in our sawmills that could be used. And to print a home, we need about 10 tons. Yeah, they're using like waste material. This wood house is fully recyclable. 200 years from now, if our grandchildren don't want the house anymore, we can grind it up, put it back into the printer and print something else with it. Dagger says the printing process is faster than building a conventional home. Our goal here is when we scale up the process is to be able to print a home every 48 hours. And right now they're putting their product to a test. The house that we have outside right now is going to go through a good old Maine winter. Some people in Maine would like to help. We've had a lot of people already ask to sleep on it for, for the night. We've had people suggest that we Airbnb it. <laughs> Airbnb. Researchers hope this technology could reduce home building costs in the future.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm May Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The ball is now in the Justice Department's court after members of Congress, for the first time in history, recommended that a former president be criminally prosecuted. It's Tuesday, December 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Supreme Court has temporarily maintained pandemic migration restrictions known as Title 42. Vice President Kamala Harris says the Biden administration will send more agents to the southern border once those restrictions end. We need to put more resources into fixing a broken immigration system, broken um, in large part by the previous president. Also, the company behind the video game Fortnite will pay more than half a billion dollars for failing to protect young players. Plus, the cost of a partridge in a pear tree this Christmas. There's more demand for pear trees than there are partridges, and so that's what's driving pricing up. Sunny in upper 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The January 6th committee is wrapping up its investigation of what led to the deadly insurrection at the Capitol that day. NPR's Domenico Montanaro looks at the political fallout of the hearings and what it could mean for former President Donald Trump's efforts to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. After a thousand plus interviews and testimony from dozens of people close to Trump, the committee is referring him to the Justice Department to pursue four charges. They include obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiring to defraud the United States. The referrals have no legal weight, but the committee has had a political impact. The issue of preserving democracy has risen in the polls as a top concern. Several of Trump's election denying candidates lost in swing states in the midterms and independents moved more toward blaming Trump for the riot. Trump is arguably at his most vulnerable point since leaving office, though he remains the frontrunner for his party's nomination in a multi-candidate field. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The Texas border city of El Paso is still preparing for the arrival of thousands of migrants, despite the Supreme Court putting a hold on a pandemic health order that was set to expire on Wednesday. Aaron Montez from member station KTEP reports that under Title 42, most migrants are quickly expelled, including those seeking asylum. Officials in El Paso are scrambling to find more shelter space for the hundreds of migrants arriving daily. They announced plans to convert a large city-owned building into a shelter. As many as 2,500 people a day have turned themselves into Border Patrol. Many have been released to await immigration hearings. Mayor Oscar Leeser said he expects thousands to make their way across the border to El Paso. He called on the federal government to do more. Right now, what we're looking at is a band-aid to a bigger problem. 
and it's something that uh, the federal government will have to work out because we can't continue to go at this rate. The city and county are getting federal funds to help with the humanitarian crisis. Hundreds of migrants have been sleeping on the streets in frigid temperatures. I'm Aaron Montes in El Paso. Disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of sex crimes in Los Angeles on Monday. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports dozens of witnesses took to the stand in more than a month of often emotional testimony. The jury found Weinstein guilty of all three charges related to a model and actress identified only as Jane Doe. And after the verdict, she told news outlets that Weinstein forever destroyed her the night he raped her after a film festival in 2013. In a statement, she said, quote, I hope Weinstein never sees the outside of a prison cell during his lifetime. That's NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reporting. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Massachusetts Medical Society says you should start masking up ahead of the holidays. The group says cases of COVID, the flu, and other respiratory viruses are already starting to strain the local health care system. It's recommending you wear a mask while gathering indoors, whether you're symptomatic or not. It's also telling people to get their flu and COVID shots. And the group advises that if you aren't feeling well, you should just stay home. Out of all subject areas, Massachusetts students' reading ability took the biggest hit in the pandemic. That's according to test data of third graders analyzed by a new state committee on pandemic recovery and literacy. State Associate Education Commissioner Rob Curtin says this pattern held for third graders from several disadvantaged backgrounds. We were actually on a pretty um, good rise in uh, coming into 2019 um, in grade three. But now, unfortunately, in the last two in the last two administrations, we have seen the decline. Forty four percent of third grade students met or exceeded expectations in English this year. That's compared to 56 percent in 2019. Boston police say there is not a significant change in overall crime in the city this year compared to last. Newly released data show there were 40 murders in the city so far this year. That's the same number as 2021. Reports of violent crimes like rape and assault were all lower than the five-year average. Property crime was down 2 percent overall this year, but the department says there was an increase in vehicle thefts. There will be a discussion today about the future of Reggie Wong Memorial Park in Boston's Chinatown. The discussion involves open space advocates and the Department of Transportation. Environmental hazards in the soil left over from the big dig are preventing the two sides from coming to an agreement about a lease for the park, which is the neighborhood's only recreational space. WBUR's Amy Moon reports. Reggie Wong Park is a small paved lot near South Station that residents have used for almost 50 years. The community has been trying to formally lease the space since 2016 in order to protect it from future development. But negotiations hit a snag when the DOT found asbestos on the land last year. Lydia Lowe of Chinatown Community Land Trust says the outstanding question is how much the DOT is willing to clean up. What's the plan for the condition in which the site will be delivered to us? And that has to do with the remediation of polluted soil. The DOT said in an email that it's working with the Department of Environmental Protection to help clean up the site. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Moon. It's 8.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. GoodNewsGarage.org. In sports, the Bruins remain unbeaten in regulation at home. They won 7-3 against the Florida Panthers last night. The Bees' next game is Thursday at the Garden against the Winnipeg Jets. Sunny today with a high in the upper 30s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s, mostly sunny tomorrow and near 40. Rain moves in Thursday night. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The U.S. has dropped many pandemic restrictions, but thanks to the Supreme Court, a pandemic rule that slows down border traffic remains in place. For almost three years, the United States has invoked Title 42, a public health rule that makes it easier to turn away migrants at the border. The Biden administration expected that order to expire this week, but many state governments resisted, and Chief Justice John Roberts granted their request to stop the change until he can hear the government's response. In an NPR interview, Vice President Kamala Harris said the United States is preparing for the order to end whenever it does. That means, again, putting more agents um, on the border as appropriate so that we can manage um, what might be an influx. NPR's Joel Rose is in El Paso, Texas, where many migrants have already arrived. Uh, Joel, the city where you're in has seen a significant rise in the number of migrants crossing the border in the last week, all in anticipation of the end of Title 42. What are the city's plans now? Yeah, so the city says it's moving ahead as if Title 42 is ending. At a press conference Monday afternoon, El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser said the city is still treating this as an emergency and that it's continuing to prepare for large numbers of of migrants to arrive. The mayor said he's been in touch with city officials in Juarez, Mexico, just across the border from El Paso. We want to make sure that we're prepared. Uh, We've heard that numbers are really big uh, in uh, Mexico right now in Juarez, and uh, there's probably over 20,000 over there today that are waiting for Title 42 to be lifted. El Paso is standing up an operations center and trying to identify enough shelter beds to get people off the streets. Temperatures here are dipping below freezing at night, which is you know pretty cold for people who really only have the clothes on their back. What El Paso officials want is to get more migrants processed quickly and bust them out of town to other cities like San Antonio and Houston that have bigger airports and better transportation networks than El Paso so that the shelters here don't overflow. Yeah, it's okay. So the restrictions are in place. Uh, When might we know if they're going to be lifted or extended further? It's hard to say. You know, for now, these restrictions allow immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants at the border without giving them a chance to seek asylum. Last month, the federal judge in Washington ruled that the policy is unlawful and ordered the Biden administration to end it. But a group of Republican attorneys general from 19 states have been trying to extend Title 42. They argue that lifting it would spark even more illegal immigration at the border. Uh, And then they've taken their appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. The court yesterday, in an order from Chief Justice John Roberts, didn't say much. It only says that the lower court ruling is stayed for the moment. It doesn't lay out any kind of timetable for how long the stay will continue. However, it does ask the Justice Department for a response by 5 p.m. today. That's not a long time, which suggests that, you know, we could get a relatively quick decision on whether these Title 42 restrictions are extended or whether they're allowed to end soon, maybe even in the next few days 
um, you know, still a lot of ways that could go. Looking ahead, Joel, uh, any long-term ideas for policy around asylum seekers? That is also a moving target. The Biden administration is reportedly weighing some major changes to the asylum system that would restrict who can apply for asylum at the border while trying to encourage migrants to apply from outside the U.S. and not to cross the border illegally. But administration officials have not made any formal announcements yet about exactly what they are planning. And I don't expect that they will until we get, you know, some more clarity about what is next with Title 42. That's Joel Rose, covers immigration for NPR. Joel, thanks. You're welcome. Just before the Chief Justice temporarily kept that immigration rule in place, Vice President Kamala Harris addressed the wider immigration debate. She spoke with NPR's Asma Khalid. The vice president insisted the immigration picture is a lot bigger than just what's happening with Title 42. She said ultimately the country needs to overhaul its immigration laws, and she blamed Republicans for being unwilling to engage on that front. So I asked her, in lieu of congressional action, what can the White House do? The president and I and our administration, we are going to do everything that's within our ability as the executive branch. And that means, again, putting more agents um, on the border as appropriate so that we can manage um, what might be an influx. It is about increasing the work that we have been increasing around arresting human smugglers. And it is the work that we have been doing that has been about bringing the partners and the allies together on an international level, understanding that we are seeing these migration trends around the globe, and in particular, the work that we have done that has been about addressing the root causes of migration from, for example, the northern part of Central America, actually is having an impact. You heard the vice president mention the root causes of migration. Well, that's part of her portfolio. She's supposed to be tackling that issue. And she's gotten a lot of criticism for the situation at the border. Though, to be clear, the big uptick in migrants lately has come more from countries outside of Central America, like Cuba and Venezuela. Still, the Biden administration has been urging Congress for more funding to deal with border security if there's an influx of migrants once Title 42 lifts. This reliance on Congress gets at another big unresolved priority for the White House. That's reproductive rights. I last interviewed the vice president after the Supreme Court overturned longstanding abortion rights. She spoke then about the need to win more Senate seats to enshrine abortion rights into law. But Democrats, even after the midterms, don't have the numbers in Congress to do that. So I asked Harris, what happens now? A lot has to happen. I very much think of this as a movement, and certainly picking up on the movement that was started generations ago that led to the passage of of Roe v. Wade and the meaning of that in terms of the court's decision there. We have to pick up where those leaders left off and do it in a way that is about continuing to organize around the issue so that we can empower people and also have an impact on what's happening in the states. The Supreme Court decision made it clear that with no national law, the abortion fight for now is going to be fought at the state level. So there's the work we need to do to to strengthen and support state leaders and local leaders. There is the work that we need to do to continue to appeal to the common sense and goodwill of members of the United States Congress to pass the Women's Health Protection Act with a recognition that this issue is fundamentally about the issue of freedom and liberty, foundational issues for our nation. On abortion, Harris is taking the long view. 
It's similar to her perspective on the chaos at Twitter. A new owner is shaking up the rules on what people can post, and some people have been leaving the site. I asked the vice president if there's a point where she'd decide she's no longer going to use the platform anymore. She didn't directly answer, but she had a warning. She mentioned her work on the Senate Intelligence Committee and its investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and the spread of misinformation online. When I see how social media is used in that way, it causes me a very deep level of concern as someone who has a, a responsibility and a first priority to, to, to consider and protect our nation's security, including the security of our democracy. So what I would say about any social media site is this. I, would, I fully expect and would require that leaders in that sector cooperate and work with us who are concerned about national security, concerned about upholding and protecting our democracy, to do everything in their power to ensure that there is not a manipulation um, that is allowed um, or overlooked that is, is done with the intention of upending the security of our democracy and our nation. Those are the things that concern me most of all. I also asked Harris about some of the tough aspects of her job, and we talked about how she's had to spend a lot of time tethered to Washington these last two years, because in an evenly divided Senate, the vice president is the tiebreaker, and she's had to break a tie 26 times. I needed to be available and on call, essentially, um, throughout the week when the Senate was in session in the event that my vote was needed. And so that had a, a real impact on the ability to then plan uh, any kind of travel, be it domestic or international. So um, that might seem like a mundane fact, but it actually will be a big difference in terms of um, how I'm able to do my work as vice president. She's hopeful that the new Senate in January will give her a little bit more flexibility. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The world's oceans are warming, but the change is not the same everywhere. And the waters off the west coast of Ecuador's Galapagos Islands are actually getting colder. And that cool water creates a refuge from climate change for coral reefs, birds, and marine animals. A researcher at the University of Colorado Boulder says he knows why this region keeps cool. It's called the equatorial undercurrent, and it flows eastward along the Pacific Ocean. Chris Karnauskas is an associate professor of atmospheric and oceanic science. He says when that undercurrent hits the islands, it pushes cool, nutrient-rich water to the surface. Which is essentially what sustains life in the marine realm. Karnauskas and his team analyzed satellite data. They found the water in the area has cooled by about one degree Fahrenheit over the past 40 years. That's quite an interesting trend, considering most of the rest of the world ocean is warming. And the equatorial undercurrent isn't just cooling. It's actually been strengthening. And of course, the longer that holds on, the better for the, the ecosystem in that region. Karnaskas hopes to put off the day when it changes. If it's the type of ecosystem that might have a, a little bit of an extra running start in the fight against climate change, you know, it might hold on longer. It might enable other regions to, to hold on and to survive. And I would say that it's a candidate for taking an extra close look at trying to really conserve this region. 
Karnaskas hopes that if this area is protected, it could possibly serve as a gene bank to help restore biodiversity in marine ecosystems in other parts of the world. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we talk to the Republican chair of a new congressional committee focused on the economic and security challenges posed by China. It's 819. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. Americans are spending more time alone and less time with friends. We are social creatures, which means that just like we need water, we need oxygen, we need food to function, we need social interaction. The dramatic drop in how much time you spend with your friends and why it's so important to reverse the trend. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Heads up for commuter rail riders this morning. There are delays of up to 20 minutes right now on the Providence-Stoughton line because of what the T calls a rail defect in Mansfield. No word on how long those delays will continue. Clear skies today with a high near 40 and some strong winds. It stays mostly clear tonight and falls to a low of 22. Tomorrow, sunny with a high again near 40. Mostly cloudy and near 50 on Thursday. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paramount Pictures with Babylon. In a world without rules, how far would you go for your dreams? Starring Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. In theaters December 23rd, this film is rated R. And from Bed Bath & Beyond with cleaning products too. Featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and Ugg. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The new Republican leaders of the House plan to challenge President Biden on many issues. But on one, they may agree. Competition with China. President Biden has kept President Trump's tariffs against China in place. Biden blocked China from receiving computer chip technology and strengthened U.S. alliances. Both parties supported a law against using products made by forced labor. Now, Republican Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin is set to lead a new House Select Committee on China. If you had to put a number on it, what percentage of opinion about China and the threat to China is bipartisan right now? Yeah, maybe if I had to guess, it'd be 75%. Gallagher is a former U.S. Marine. He's in his 30s. The presumptive House Speaker Kevin McCarthy elevated him to a chairmanship. 
which is a little tenuous now since McCarthy himself has yet to clinch his speakership. But if it works out, Congressman Gallagher becomes Chairman Gallagher and will focus on what is called decoupling. That's the term people use for separating the world's two biggest economies. Gallagher talks of partial or selective decoupling. So when I talk about selective decoupling, I'm really talking about three things. One is technology, ensuring that we aren't subsidizing technology in China that could be used to commit genocide or enhance China's military modernization that would speed up their timeline for taking Taiwan, for example. We don't want American dollars flowing into key technology industries in China that can build tools for techno-totalitarian oppression, as well as subsidizing China's military modernization. And then finally, data. Uh, right now, we, it's really the Wild West when it comes to cross-border data flows. The CCP is sucking up data from foreign countries, feeding it into their model for total control. It's a non-reciprocal arrangement. Our companies don't have the same privileges when they operate in China. We really need to figure out what is the right regulatory model for monitoring cross-border data flows. This thing has gotten very heated right now with the question of TikTok and whether we should ban it in the United States. But data is kind of the third part of selective decoupling. Do you assume that just about any business with China somehow strengthens China in a way that is harmful to the United States? Not, I mean, this really gets to the heart of selective decoupling, right? I don't think we should have a concern, for example, with us buying cheap goods from China, other than concerns over what domestic industries that might be hollowing out. And I don't think we should have a concern, for example, about Wisconsin farmers selling soybeans to China, right? Those are low-level goods that I don't think anyone's going to say are allowing China to increase their efforts to enslave a, a million Uyghur Muslims. However, there is, there is this question of where do you draw the line? And certainly when it comes to Chinese state champions, we've seen this with Huawei, we've seen this with ZTE, and increasingly we're seeing it with ByteDance and other technology companies. That, I think, is where we really have to be um, really skeptical of allowing them to have access to this much data in America and also skeptical of American technology being used by the CCP to do things, for example, like advance their hypersonic program. Let me ask about another economic connection. I can think of any number of U.S. companies that do business in China and seem to speak very carefully as a result. The NBA is a prominent example, but we could raise Elon Musk, the owner of Tesla and current owner of Twitter, among other things, has companies that do business with the U.S. government like, like SpaceX, and he's doing a lot of business in China. Does that raise a national security concern? You, you, you mentioned the NBA. I, I think that caught a lot of people's uh, attention uh, when Daryl Morey, who I believe was GM of the Houston Rockets at the time, uh, tweeted out support for the protesters in Hong Kong, um, many of whom were, uh, were waving American flags in the streets of Hong Kong, by the way, and then quickly got silenced by the NBA and by extension the Chinese Communist Party. I do think that raises real and legitimate concerns about the amount of leverage that the CCP has over American businesses. And if they're forcing businesses to self-censor, which we've also seen in Hollywood, right? We've seen a variety of movies that were edited to be more friendly to the Chinese Communist Party. I think that drives Americans wild. I, I think it, it really, the, the sort of hypocrisy as well, at the time we had people attacking America for being such an evil neo-colonial racist hellscape as CCP wolf warrior diplomats are doing every single day on American social media companies. And then we're softening the language we use with respect to the Chinese Communist Party. That's something that I think angers a lot of Americans. Whether it lends itself to an easy legislative solution is a different question. Are you concerned specifically about Elon Musk, who is so influential in several different industries right now? 
Well, Elon Musk, I think you're right to point out that profits for Tesla come from China. Uh, and I do think Elon Musk has an opportunity with his new ownership of Twitter to do one thing that seems small, but I think would have a big impact. So I mentioned uh, Chinese diplomats, so-called wolf warrior diplomats that are all over American social media companies. They, of course, don't allow their own citizens access to these platforms. So at the same time, they're on Twitter attacking America, saying America is this terrible, evil country. Chinese citizens are barred from accessing Twitter accessing information. So what I would encourage Elon Musk to do is the same thing I encouraged his predecessor Jack Dorsey to do, which is a simply apply the principle of reciprocity and say to any foreign government that doesn't allow their citizens access to these platforms, we will deny your propagandists, your diplomats access to that same uh, policy. So that's definitely something worth uh, looking into. Um, and uh, my hope is that Elon Musk will respond to the proposal with greater alacrity and depth than Jack Dorsey did. One other thing, Congressman, do you expect a likely war over Taiwan between the United States and China in the next few years? I'm increasingly concerned. I think we've entered the, the window of maximum danger for uh, a few reasons. Uh, one, this you know, Xi Jinping just secured a, a third term as General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. He's 69, I believe, right now. This is his legacy issue. He's repeatedly talked about uh, doing what Mao couldn't do, uh, taking Taiwan, uh, reunifying Taiwan with the mainland using force if necessary. So there's his personal ambition. And then there's sort of the looming challenges he faces in the 2030s, exploding demographic issues. No society ever has dealt with this many retirees. So there's all sorts of things conspiring to make the next five years the best opportunity he'll ever get to take Taiwan by force. There's all this bipartisan happy talk about arming Taiwan to the teeth, turning it into a porcupine, learning the lesson of deterrence failure in Ukraine and applying that to Taiwan by arming your partners before the shooting starts. But we aren't actually doing it. And that makes a deterrence failure more likely. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the company behind the video game Fortnite has agreed to pay half a billion dollars for violating privacy laws and tricking kids into making in-game purchases. And, you know, that song, The 12 Days of Christmas, laying out everything my true love gave to me. Many of those gifts have gotten more expensive this year. And you can get into the Christmas spirit tonight with WBUR's annual reading of A Christmas Carol. Join Meghna Chakrabarty, Daryl C. Murphy, and others as they read the Dickens classic. The event raises money for Rosie's Place. Join us tonight at 7, either in person or virtually. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol is recommending former President Donald Trump be prosecuted on criminal charges. The panel is referring Trump to the Justice Department on four counts, including insurrection. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland is a member of the committee. All of us have to be equal under the law, and the Department of Justice uh, has to regard it uh, in that way. I mean, either that's a real proposition or that's a fake one. 
Raskin was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Trump responded to the committee's referral on his social media platform, calling the move partisan and adding, quote, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. The referral carries no legal authority. President Biden has until this afternoon to respond to an order from the U.S. Supreme Court. That order from Chief Justice John Roberts temporarily keeps Title 42 pandemic border restrictions in place. Republican attorneys general in 19 states sought that order, arguing the restrictions are essential to preventing a surge of migrants at the U.S. southern border. Title 42 was set to expire tomorrow. Congressional leaders are proposing a $1.7 trillion budget ahead of Friday night's deadline to avert a partial shutdown of the federal government. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The MGM Springfield Casino will get the second in-person sports betting license in the state. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission awarded it yesterday. As has been referenced on the calendar, it's it's aptly timed for the gift of this decision. That's MGM Springfield President Chris Kelly. He says the decision to allow betting at his casino will benefit the city and the state. We are extraordinarily excited about, in the not-too-distant future, transitioning an extraordinary sports lounge into a sports book. Encore Boston Harbor in Everett had received the first sports betting license in the state. Gamblers are expected to be able to place in-person wagers by next month. Online sports betting is expected to begin in March. Starting next summer, all Massachusetts public school districts will be required to assess students in kindergarten through third grade on their literacy skills. Tests will be at least twice a year and involve things like sounding out letters. WBR's Vanessa Ochevillo reports the objective is to identify early signs of dyslexia and other reading difficulties. Dyslexia is one of the most common learning disabilities among Massachusetts students but it's not often identified until a child reaches the third grade. Nancy Duggan, executive director of Decoding Dyslexia Massachusetts, says the new law will help start that screening process much earlier with clearer parameters. Schools are either having trouble doing it or not doing it well. And so the state curated or reviewed all kinds of screeners because there's a lot of skills involved with literacy. Officials say the screenings will help identify students who need additional support. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillo. TVs in public places in Boston will soon be required to have closed captioning on at all times. Mayor Michelle Wu will sign an ordinance today making that rule official. It was approved by the city council last week. Disability advocates say the policy improves access for non-native English speakers and people with hearing issues. It's similar to a law in several other cities. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. The Bruins beat the Florida Panthers 7-3 last night at the Garden. Boston's Patrice Bergeron had two goals and two assists in the win. The Bees are off until Thursday. That's when they'll host the Winnipeg Jets. Sunny and windy with temperatures rising to near 40 today. Tonight, mostly clear and low 20s. Tomorrow, a repeat of today, sunny and near 40. We'll get a slight warm-up to near 50 on Wednesday, but it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 31 degrees in Boston at 834.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from Clarivate, creators of the Ideas to Innovation podcast, an exploration into solutions designed to address the world's most complex problems at clarivate.com slash podcasts. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The company that makes the popular computer games Fortnite will have to pay half a billion dollars to the Federal Trade Commission and consumers. The FTC alleges that Epic Games failed to protect children from harassment and abuse while playing Fortnite and tricked players into making unintentional purchases in the game. The $520 billion settlement is the largest ever ordered by the FTC. Jason DeBruin is with North Carolina Public Radio, the state where Epic Games is based. Jason, so give us some background. What was this case all about? Yeah, so parents listening to this probably have kids maybe who played the game Fortnite. It sort of simulates a world where characters can battle against each other or also build communities. Um, There are a lot of people who play this, more like 400 million people worldwide. Um, And the game makers, Epic, they found a way to charge kids accounts without their parents always knowing about it. And each one of these charges or each of these purchases, it's like a dollar or maybe even less. But of course, the problem is when you add that over 400 million people, uh, you know, it adds up to a lot of money. What were the kids buying? Stuff, it's all in-app purchases or these in-game purchases, right? I mean, the game is free to play, but then there's all kinds of stuff in the game you can buy. So it's like a a skin or a dance move or a costume. Um, And these are kind of like status symbols, to be honest. And and sometimes these status symbols would even spill over into into the outside world, the real world. Uh, Maybe you've seen trends go viral on TikTok or, or other places. So what's the impact then of this settlement? It's a big one. Yeah, the money, obviously. I mean, it's, you know, half a billion dollars, as you said, is a lot of money. Um, and that'll some of it will be refunded to, to parents, to players. Um, and of course, the company will not have to get more explicit approval uh, from parents when when making charges. But also importantly, the second thing here is data collection. So in addition to sort of harvesting money, they were harvesting data from players. And this happened oftentimes through default settings that automatically opted players in to giving personal data as opposed to the default setting being to opt out. Um, so we don't know exactly what data was being collected, but you know you can kind of guess probably age, location, gender, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and on top of that, in some cases when parents tried to have that data deleted, it was very difficult or in some cases literally impossible for them to do so. So that's, that's a big change as well. All right, so what does Epic Games have to say about uh, these practices? So they said that they didn't break the law, which is true. Um, you know, they settled before this went to court or anything like that. Um, and they said basically that the laws have not caught up with the gaming industry. Here's a, a sentence from their statement. Statutes written decades ago don't specify how gaming ecosystems should operate. But of course, that said, the FTC said that, okay, even if maybe this wasn't technically illegal, it certainly was unethical. Uh, Here's part of their statement. Epic put children and teens at risk through its lax privacy practices and cost consumers millions in illegal charges through its use of dark patterns. All right. So, Jason, parents, uh, should they be expecting some kind of big payment coming out of this settlement? 
Yeah, probably not. I mean, mm. some parents might be refunded, as I said, maybe that buck or, you know, a couple bucks or something like that. And of course, this doesn't establish a new law. So, you know, you still have to be careful, right? You still always have to be vigilant about what it is your, your kids are playing. Of course, there's no guarantees. So, you know, parents, it's, it's always important to be mindful and vigilant of the game that your kids are playing. Jason DeBruin of North Carolina Public Radio. Jason, thanks. You're welcome. Inflation is moderating, but prices are still higher in this season of gift giving than they were last time. Of course, the price hikes depend on the product. As we can hear in PNC Bank's annual inflation scorecard based on the 12 Days of Christmas song. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the Christmas Price Index. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. Partridge prices were flat this year, but the price of pear trees jumped sharply. Amanda Agati of PNC Bank calls that a classic case of supply and demand. There's more demand for pear trees than there are partridges, but the supply of pear trees has been somewhat more limited this year, and so that's what's driving pricing up. Turtle doves and French hens also saw double-digit price increases this year. Agati blames the rising cost of bird feed, as well as the growing popularity of backyard farming. And don't let the birds hear me say this, but also a farm-to-table phenomenon that continues there. So I think consumer demand for many of these exotic pet categories is up quite a bit. If you add up the cost of gifts for all 12 days of Christmas in the song, the price has jumped by 10.5% from a year ago. That's the third biggest increase since the bank started tracking holiday inflation back in the 1980s. This year, the Christmas price index has jumped even more than the consumer price index, the official inflation yardstick compiled by the Labor Department. Whenever inflation is high, some people seek shelter in precious metals, such as... Ring prices are up a whopping 39% this year. Overall, though, it's not the rings or any of the stuff under the Christmas tree that's really pushing the price index higher. As with overall inflation, it's increasingly a story about costly services. Eleven pipers piping, ten lords a-leaping, nine ladies dancing. Dancing ladies, piping pipers, and leaping lords all cost more this year. The lords price tag, which is based on salaries at the Philadelphia Ballet, leapt more than 24%. There's no question services inflation is higher than goods inflation in the PNC Christmas price index, but that's what we're seeing in the broader economy. Inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are also worried about the rising price of services, even as the prices of some goods, like used cars, are starting to come down. Service prices are largely driven by rising wages, and as a result, they tend to be hard to reverse. For a long time, the seven swans of swimming were the most expensive item in the Christmas index, but they seem to have lost some of their luster. The price of swans has been treading water for the last three years. You know, I'm not sure I know what to do with seven swans. I wouldn't know how to take care of them. Interest rates are also climbing this year as the Fed tries to crack down on inflation. So if you do your holiday shopping with a credit card, you might pay even more. Even if you're not in the market for a partridge or a pear tree this year, Agati says there are lessons to be learned from the Christmas price index. Clearly, our specialty gift basket of goods and services here is not well insulated from some of the trends that the broader economy is experiencing. True love's really going to have to shell it out this year. And whatever you and your true love might have on your gift list, don't let inflation take the joy out of the holiday season. And a partridge in a pear tree. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, accusations that the new New York representative-elect for Long Island, George Santos, misrepresented several aspects of his personal history. Temperatures will rise to near 40 today, and it'll still be windy under sunny skies. Tonight, it falls to low 20s. Tomorrow, about the same. Clear skies and near 40. Cloudy and near 50 on Thursday. It's 32 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Now in business news, the price of gas in Massachusetts is still dropping as people hit the road for the holidays. AAA says the average price for a gallon of regular fuel is now $3.43. That's 10 cents lower than a week ago. Diesel is down 13 cents, with a gallon costing an average of $5.31. Both prices are still above the national average. Isimchem Laboratories is opening a new facility in Woburn. The China-based pharmaceutical company says the site will focus on early-stage research and development. Condé Nast says the Ocean House in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, is among the best hotels and resorts in the world. It made the travel company's 2023 gold list. Condé Nast noted the Ocean House's hospitality and, quote, plush surroundings in its ranking. And in case you're curious, we looked it up. A weekend stay there next month will cost you more than $1,100, and that's for the least expensive room. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. A freshman Republican congressman-elect from New York appears to have faked much of his life story. George Santos won a House race on Long Island in November. He made claims about his education and business career that sources tell NPR are untrue. A top Republican leader in New York now says the accusations against Santos are, quote, serious. NPR's Brian Mann reports. During the campaign, George Santos described his career and his life story as a shining example of the American dream. Here he is speaking on CBS Channel 2 before the election. 
I'm a private sector guy. I was born and raised in, in abject poverty in this country, and only in this country does somebody who comes from a basement apartment in Jackson Heights like I did is able to rise to become a successful business person to then run for United States Congress. I but, want to but it turns out much of Santos' backstory appears untrue. Santos claimed in his official campaign bio he graduated from Baruch College with a bachelor's degree in economics and finance. In a statement sent to NPR, the school says it searched its records for Santos and, quote, could not find a match. The New York Times, which broke this story, also found Santos appears to have fabricated his history working for prestigious Wall Street firms. In a statement to NPR, a Citigroup spokesperson said they were, quote, unable to confirm Mr. Santos' employment with Citi. A Goldman Sachs spokesperson also told NPR he could find no record of Santos ever being employed by their company. NPR tried repeatedly to contact Santos without success. A top New York State Republican, Joseph Cairo Jr., however, issued a statement Monday calling the accusations against Santos serious. Cairo, who chairs the influential Nassau County Republican Committee on Long Island, said Santos, quote, deserves an opportunity to address the claims. Every person deserves an opportunity to clear his or her name in the face of accusations, Cairo added. Santos, who is gay, also claimed in an interview with WNYC Public Radio that four of his employees died when a gunman opened fire at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, in 2016. Which I happened to, at the time, have people that worked for me in the club. We, my company at the time, we lost four employees that worked that were at Pulse nightclub. Santos said he has tragic memories of that deadly mass shooting, but the New York Times investigation could find no link between any of the 49 victims and firms or companies tied to Santos. Late Monday afternoon, the Santos campaign released a statement from his attorney, Joseph Murray, who called reporting about Santos' biography, quote, defamatory allegations. But Murray didn't offer documents or other information to refute claims that Santos invented major parts of his resume. Some Democrats are calling for Santos to resign before taking office. That would likely trigger a special election in a competitive House district. The scandal could also complicate Congressman Kevin McCarthy's bid for the House speakership. McCarthy has been struggling to secure enough votes from GOP members to win the gavel. Santos committed yesterday on Twitter that he would vote for McCarthy. But Santos' own future in Washington is now in serious question. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Marketplace Morning Report will is coming up. It'll break down what we can learn about economics from the classic holiday film, It's a Wonderful Life. 
And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Robin Young is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Robin. Hi to you, and I love that idea, the economics of It's American uh, it's American Life. <laughs> this yeah. is a wonderful life, because it's true, and then that scene when he says, your money isn't here. Oh, you're not going to do the accent? His, We're gonna no, do I the can't. Voice. No, okay. I can't. It's in her mortgage and her mortgage. What a great idea. Anyway. <laughs> I can't do the voice either. <laughs> today on Here and Now, uh, we're going to have all the news for you. Of course, we're going to get more reaction to yesterday's uh, Jan 6 mm-hmm. Committee's call out to the Justice Department to criminally indict uh, former President Donald Trump. We'll have that in all the news. Keep an eye on the border. Uh, but also, uh, is uh, Elon Musk calling out to QAnon? We'll have a right-wing extremist expert talking about how uh, at least QAnon followers think that the uh, CEO of Twitter is uh, giving them little dog whistles. Huh. So we'll have that story. Also, two really great conversations with Sarah Polly, who's the actress-director of the new uh, hot film Women Talking, and Audra McDonald, who is astonishing in Adrian Kennedy's Ohio State Murders on Broadway. Kennedy is 91. Her play is first being staged on Broadway, and the great Audra McDonald is embodying this character, a very angry black woman who has to contain that anger in order to get her story across. It's fabulous. We'll have her conversation at noon. Wow, there's a lot there. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Thousands of Afghans were brought to the U.S. after the Taliban took over in 2021, but the vast majority still don't have legal status here. A new bill before Congress could determine their fate. If the Afghan Adjustment Act does not pass, by no fault of their own, despite that they have followed all the rules, they will suddenly be here illegally. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Money lessons from a classic Hollywood movie. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. I'm David Brancaccio. First, congressional leaders have unveiled a $1.7 trillion government spending bill. It happened overnight. It could, should, avert a partial government shutdown this week. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer reports from Washington. The legislation gives more money to defense than non-defense programs, according to a summary of the bill released by Senate Democrats. The measure would send more than $800 billion to the Pentagon. There's more than $700 billion for non-defense discretionary programs, including a 22 percent increase for medical care for veterans, plus more money for SNAP formerly known as food stamps, and child nutrition programs, along with housing assistance for seniors and people with disabilities. There's also more emergency assistance for Ukraine and NATO allies, along with funding for recovery from drought, hurricanes, flooding, and other natural disasters in the U.S. The bill would also ban the use of TikTok on federal government devices, and it would overhaul the federal electoral vote counting law. Both the House and Senate need to pass the bill and send it to President Biden for his signature ahead of a midnight deadline Friday to avoid a partial government shutdown. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. 
Checking markets, S&P futures are down a tenth percent. Dow futures are up a tenth percent. NASDAQ futures down three-tenths percent. Now, Japan is a a place famous for prices seldom rising all that much, but surprise, today the Bank of Japan moved one interest rate up slightly, and that has people selling bonds around the world. Here, the 10-year interest rate, the Treasury yield is up at 3.66%. Later today, the House Ways and Means Committee will vote on whether to publicly release the tax returns of Donald Trump. The Supreme Court cleared the way for this. For decades, other presidents have published their returns. New York Times reporting found that the former president had paid no income taxes at all in 10 of the previous 15 years because his accounting showed him tending to lose more money than he made. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine, where you can find a new favorite Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine this holiday. Spirits not sold in Virginia or North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21. And by Unisys, where some see barriers, Unisys sees breakthroughs. A technology solutions partner across digital workplace, app modernization, cloud, and beyond. One breakthrough sets the next in motion. Unisys, keep breaking through. More at Unisys.com. For our Econ Extra Credit project this month, instead of a documentary, we're watching director Frank Capra's holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life, from 1946. Central to the plot is the family business, Bailey Brothers Building and Loan Association. Here's the boss, George Bailey, played by James Stewart, who tells this to unsettled customers. You're you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. The, The money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and and a hundred others. You're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? We're joined by a professor who has studied building and loans, not to be confused with savings and loans. David Mason is a history professor at Georgia Gwinnett College. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, David. So do you like the character's explanation there? Does it help you understand what a real building and loan was? Absolutely. It was basically an association that was member-owned. The individuals joined with the primary goal of becoming homeowners. And they did it by making monthly payments toward shares in the association. And those payments would then be lent back to them as a form of a home mortgage. And over the course of, say, 7 to 12 years, they would end up owning their own home. So it was an institution that had an important role in what sounds like economic development of a very local area. Absolutely. People would form them to be part of their local community. And home ownership was part of that status of, quote, becoming a true American. And in the film, the greedy villain runs many things in that town. He has his fingers in a lot of pies, but he also has a more conventional bank. You could see how a building and loan might be seen as competitive to a commercial bank. It was. Building loans needed the banks as a form of liquidity for meeting daily needs, but they were very separate in terms of what they lent to. Banks could not or often would not lend to homeowners because these were long-term commitments, and banks tended to make short-term loans. Building loans, on the other hand, they were all about providing mortgages. So there was a friendly rivalry, but, you know, in the movie, Mr. Potter wanted it all. What happened to building and loan associations? They didn't really make it out of the Great Depression, did they? Well, building and loans basically transitioned into what we call savings loans today. It was part of a process that the industry went through after the Great Depression to kind of like 
reorganize and unify itself and become in some ways more professional. Because, you know, in the movie, the Bailey Brothers building alone really looks like a family business. And that was part of the appeal. But in the post-war era, the industry leaders wanted the savings and loans to be more like banks. Yeah, especially since that's when deposit insurance, the FDIC, comes in. And if the government's going to backstop some of this money that people have in institutions like this, it's going to want a certain level of rigor. Yes, the savings loan industry or the building loan industry lobbied for and got deposit insurance just for savings and loans in 1935. They also got a federal charter for the federal savings and loans. So this is all part of that process of kind of like revamping and modernizing the building loan image. Now, of course, savings and loans run into trouble. That defines the latter half of the 1980s, this gargantuan government unwinding of parts of that system. Absolutely. The problem with the savings and loans was deregulation. They basically let the uh, institutions make loans on almost anything they wanted. And that led to all forms of corruption, fraud, but also just plain old bad lending decisions. David Mason is a history professor at Georgia Gwinnett College. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Follow along for teachable moments from usually documentary films. Next month, it's back to docs. Sign up for our free econ extra credit newsletter. Many have. The more the merrier. Marketplace.org slash newsletters for that. And if you're sitting in your car doing a bad Jimmy Stewart impression right now, no shame in that. I'm with you. It's Dave Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBOR. We'll have sunny skies in upper 30s today. Those fall to the low 20s tonight. Sunny in upper 30s tomorrow, then cloudy and near 50 on Thursday. Rain on Friday. It's 32 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Americans are spending more time alone and less time with friends. We are social creatures, which means that just like we need water, we need oxygen, We need food to function. We need social interaction. The dramatic drop in how much time you spend with your friends and why it's so important to reverse the trend. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm midday host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.